Scripture reading this morning will be Romans 8, 9 through 11. You, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but are in the realm of the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they, they do not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the, from the dead is living in you, He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of His Spirit who lives in you. Who am I? And it's all about our identity. And it's so important because how you see yourself impacts how you live your life. And God wants you to see yourself how he sees you. And he wants you to live the life that he created you to live. What he doesn't want is for you to get your sense of identity and your sense of worth and value from the things of the world, like your accomplishments or your appearance or the things that you hold to be valuable to you and that the world often confirms are valuable. What you do as a job or a career, even a relationship. Also, God doesn't want you to get your sense of definement as a person. He doesn't want you to be defined by your desires or by your struggles, by your failings. He doesn't want you to be defined by maybe a dysfunctional family or a bad relationship or a past that you are struggling to live beyond. You see, you are a child of God, made in the image of God, created for the glory of God. I hope you believe that about yourself. I hope that you will embrace this as your identity. This is who I am. Because when you begin to see yourself that way, you will begin to live that way. And it'll influence how you approach everything you do in life, including your relationships, what you say, what you do, how you relate to other people, how you relate to God. And so to represent some of the lies that we sometimes believe about ourselves, in each of these messages, we have been declaring what we are not. And so if you believe these statements, I want you to repeat after me. I am not what I have. I am not what I do. I am not what other people say about me. I hope that you will do more than just recite or repeat these. I hope that you will lean into these and use these statements as, as lenses to look at your life and to see and to evaluate, am I finding my sense of value and worth from the things of the world, the things that I have? Am I finding my sense of identity by what I do as a career or a job or a relationship? Am I believing what people say about me, good or bad? Am I allowing other people to shape my identity. And so use these statements as lenses to, to look at your life and to evaluate, and maybe some changes need to be made. Well, we saved today's aspect of your identity for last on purpose. In many ways, it is the culmination of all the other identity markers that we have talked about in this series. 
It is one that instills great confidence, assurance, and peace in our lives. But it is also one that many Christians struggle with. This part of their identity, many people struggle to accept it. Let me see if I can explain. Every year, Oklahomans spend something like $200 million on the Oklahoma lottery. I started to, uh, to buy a lottery ticket and bring it in here as a prop, but I knew as soon as I did, I'd be at the counter and some church member would be walking by and say, Randy, what are you doing? It's for a sermon. <laughs> sure it is, sure it is. So let me be clear, I'm not endorsing the lottery or gambling in any form. I like what Dave Ramsey says. He says about the lottery, he says it's stupid tax. I mean, think about that for a minute, stupid tax. I know I said the S word. I'm glad, I'm glad our kids are in Bible hour. They didn't hear me say that, right? Man, our preacher's buying lottery tickets, and he says stupid from the pulpit. What, what are we going to do with this guy? <laughs> so I am not endorsing gambling or the lottery. Do you know the odds? Do you know the odds of winning the Mega Millions jackpot? They are 1 in 260 million. Something like that. 1 in 260 million. So you're telling me there's a chance, right? <laughs> you have a better chance to be struck by lightning than you do to win the lottery. You have a better chance to be attacked by a shark than you do, even in Oklahoma, I think, <laughs> than you do winning the lottery. The truth is, you have a better chance of being struck by lightning while you're being attacked by a shark than you do winning the lottery. And yet, people continue to buy lottery tickets, don't they? My guess is that most people who buy these tickets, they know the astronomical odds. Now, maybe they don't know it's one in about 260 million, but they know, they know that they aren't good odds. And yet, they continue to buy them. Why? To me, this is a fascinating question. Why would you buy a lottery ticket if you knew the odds were one in something like 260 million? There's a reason. I think it's because of hope. I think it's because it gives that person a small window of hope. If just for a day or two, what can that person do? He or she can dream about what it might be like to win the lottery. Maybe they'll call my numbers. And you allow yourself to go there and to think about what that might be like. Man, how great that would be if I am the winner. And just for a day or two, you feel hope and anticipation and excitement. I think that's how some people approach eternity, as a long shot. Maybe the odds aren't one in 260 million, but for many Christians, even lifelong Christians, it's not a sure thing. And they allow themselves to, to dream about, to think about, if only for a short time or short periods of time, what it might be like to be in heaven, but they can't really let themselves go there. They can't stay there too long because doubt creeps in, uncertainty creeps in, and it keeps that person or it keeps us from living with a sense of anticipation. It keeps us from living with excitement and confidence about our eternity. You see, many of us constantly wonder or we doubt that we will be in heaven. I have visited with people in their final days on this earth, literally on their deathbeds, 
or maybe some who know that that day is approaching fairly quickly, and they have expressed doubt about their salvation. They just don't know. They're not sure. And it's not so much that they aren't sure about dying as it is they aren't sure that when they die, they will end up in heaven. Maybe it's natural to doubt, especially in a situation like that. When you find yourself on the threshold of the great unknown, maybe that's natural, but I don't think that's what God wants for us. I don't think he wants us to go through life thinking heaven is a long shot. I don't think he wants us to live our lives in constant doubt, wondering, fearing that we won't make it. In Romans chapter 7, if you have a Bible, look at Romans 7. We're going to be in Romans 7 and 8. In Romans chapter 7, Paul addresses some Jewish Christians who are struggling to embrace their salvation. They are still hanging on to the old law of Moses. And Paul says, the old law was good, and it showed you what sin is, and it convicted you of your sin. But you couldn't do it perfectly. You couldn't keep the law. And so Jesus came along, sent by God. Jesus came along, and he took your place so that you would not remain convicted of that sin. Romans chapter 7, verse 21. Paul writes, So I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. What a wretched man I am who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death. Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. You see, on our own, we will never win this battle between these two laws, the law of God, the law of sin and death, or as he will say throughout chapter 7 and and chapter 8, spirit and flesh. There is this constant war, this battle going on, and we on our own will not win. But Paul says that's not how we are left. That's not the final outcome. Thanks be to God that Jesus has rescued us. And so then in the next chapter, Romans chapter 8, Paul continues to spell out the implications of living by the Spirit or living according to God's law, of embracing one's salvation in Christ. Look at verse 1 of Romans chapter 8. Therefore, because of all of this he has just said, praise be to God, Jesus has rescued us. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. This passage is a resounding, triumphal scream of joy and victory. Paul says, in Christ, you can have assurance 
There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? Why, Paul? Why is that true? It's not because your sins don't warrant condemnation. Your sins and my sins do. It's because your sins committed in the flesh have been condemned in the flesh, but not your flesh. Remember John 1, the Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. And so Paul says in verse 3, it's in the flesh of Jesus who took our place. Verse 3, in the flesh of Jesus. And so we go back now up to verse 1. Do you remember how Paul started? He says, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That is the key phrase throughout this text. You see, often the people I visit with who are nearing, who are facing death, they ask this question either explicitly or implicitly. They ask the question, have I done enough? Am I good enough? That's what they really want to know. Have I done enough? Am I good enough to go to heaven? You know what the answer is? No. No, you're not good enough. No, you haven't done enough. That's not the answer they necessarily want to hear. But I think it reveals a flawed sense of thinking. A while back, Carrie Ann's uncle, who loves to do research, especially research on his family, on her family, he sent us a a blurb from a church bulletin from 1957. Did you know they had church bulletins in 1957? I feel like I've been working on church bulletins since 1957, trust me. This blurb in this bulletin from 1957 was about Carrie Ann's great-grandfather. Evidently, in his final days, in his final months, he was sick and he was confined to bed. And so the preacher would come visit him in his house. And every time the preacher came to visit, N.M. Thomas, her great-grandfather, would say to his wife, Mother, have you given the preacher our check? He wanted to make sure that that he had given his offering for that week. Hmm, I wonder why the preacher kept visiting him. (laughs) I know preachers, trust me, okay? That's the cynical side of me. And so every time he would visit him, that's what this man would say. Mother, did you give the preacher our check? He wanted to make sure that his offering was there every week. Well, the final words the preacher ever heard this man, N.M. Thomas, utter as he lie basically dying on his bed, the preacher's holding his hand, and he looks up to the preacher, and he says, Preacher, am I paid up? Preacher, am I paid up? Now, again, I think what he was asking is, you know, I'm, this is really important to me. I want to make sure that, that my contribution is in in the plate this week, but I think his question reveals something deeper, doesn't it? I think it reveals a a faulty mindset that we have, especially as we get older and approach possibly the end of life. We want to know if we're paid up. We envision this great big ledger, and on one side is all the things that we have done well. We've gone to church, we've read our Bible, we've tried to be nice to people, we've made good financial decisions, we try not to cheat or cuss or, or do things that we shouldn't, right? But on the other side of the ledger is all the things that, well, we shouldn't have done, but we did. All the, the things that we'd rather erase. But they're there, and we know they're there. 
And so what we're asking is, is there more on the good side than there is on the bad side? Is there enough to get me into heaven? Have I been good enough? Have I done enough? You see, that counters everything we've been saying throughout this series. The whole point of this series is that we would lose ourselves in Christ. That it wouldn't be about what we do or have done. It wouldn't be about how smart we are, how good we are. Have I done enough? Am I good enough? No. The answer is always no. And so in Romans 7 and 8, as Paul is addressing these Jews, that's the question. No, you're not good enough. You couldn't keep the law. And the same answer is for us. We aren't good enough. You see, tragically, we think eternity is more about us than it is about Jesus. We think it depends more on us than it does Jesus. And that is tragic. Go back to that phrase in verse 1 of chapter 8. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are good enough, those who know enough, those who are always right, those who can prove others wrong. Is that what he says? No. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's it. If you believe Jesus is the Son of God, and you act on that belief by submitting your life in baptism, being clothed with Christ, Galatians 3, your sins are forgiven, and you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, and you walk in or you live in the Spirit, you are in Christ. And Paul says, if you are in Christ, there is no condemnation for you. Paul continues in chapter 8, contrasting this life in the Spirit versus life in the flesh. And he makes it very clear who are in Christ. Verse 9, you, however are not in the realm of the flesh, but are in the realm of the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, used interchangeably there with the Spirit of God, I think, they do not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his spirit who lives in you. He makes it pretty clear there. If you have the spirit of God in you, you have life, eternal life. Someone says, okay, well, how do I know if I have the spirit of God in me? Is that a feeling? Is there some kind of indicator there that I can know? What do we say when we baptize people? It comes straight from Acts 2.38. Peter's preaching to the people the gospel, and they respond, and he says, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, so you will receive what? The gift of the Holy Spirit. And that's what we say when we baptize someone. You see, God gives you the gift of his Spirit at your conversion. And then the fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5, remember fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, all those things, they come from the Spirit living in us. They are indicators that the Spirit is in us. The Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit. 
So, if you have submitted your life to Christ, if you have received the gift of the Holy Spirit, if you are walking in the Spirit, you are saved. You are saved. We sometimes sing that song, Blessed Assurance. You have the blessing of assurance. If you are in Christ, your sins are covered, your salvation is secure. Now, while some people struggle with having no security in their salvation, that's sort of on one end of the spectrum, one extreme, there's another extreme. And those are people who say, once you have your ticket punched to heaven, once you've been saved, you're always saved. Nothing, nothing can, can change that. There's nothing you can do that can take that away. Well, if you look at the text, it's pretty clear. If you look back even at Romans 8, you see what Paul is saying. He's saying those who are in Christ live differently than those who live by the flesh. There is a difference. You see, our lives, how we live, it's a response to our salvation in Christ, and it shows that we belong to Christ. And so throughout the New Testament, there are examples. There are examples and teachings about us choosing to lose our salvation. People who choose to go against God. Jesus himself in John 15, he says, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me, if you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire and burned. God gives you freedom of choice. That's what love does. And Jesus says, if you remain in me, there will be fruit in your life. Hmm, sound familiar? Fruit of the Spirit, maybe? God's Spirit living in us? He says, but if you choose to turn away from me, then you're like this branch that withers and dies, that will end up in the fire. Paul writes in 2 Timothy chapter 2, here is a trustworthy saying, if we died with him, he will also live, we will also live with him. If we endure, he will also, or we will also reign with him. But if we disown him, he will disown us. It's a consistent message throughout the New Testament. When we remain in Christ, when we live in the Spirit, when we choose to live in Him and for Him, we have eternal life. But God lets us choose. And when we choose to deny Him, when we choose to live our lives apart from Him, then many times God says, okay, if that's what you choose, it breaks my heart, but I'm going to let you go down that path. People sometimes say, how can God send people to hell? How can a loving God do that? Why would, it, why would God send people to hell? God's not sending people to hell. People are choosing that path. Listen, what you do and how you live, they are, are, they are so important. But they don't earn you eternal life. What you do and how you live bear witness to the eternal life you already have. You with me? Does that make sense? What you do is so important, but that doesn't punch your ticket to heaven. You can't earn your way to heaven. Rather, those things, what you do, those are indicators. 
Those bear witness to the eternal life that you have even right now. They are markers, not makers of your salvation. And so your life stands apart from lives lived in the flesh because you're living in the Spirit. And God is developing the fruit of the Spirit in your life, and He is transforming you more and more into the image of His Son. If you are in Christ, you are saved. If you still have doubts, if you're still unsure, let the inspired words of 1 John chapter 5 that speak so clearly and so plainly sink in. 1 John chapter 5, verse 11. And this is what God has testified. He has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. So whoever has God's Son has life. Whoever does not have his Son does not have life. I write this to you who believe in the Son of God so that you may know you have eternal life. John says, I want you to know. I want you to have confidence. I want you to have assurance. This isn't a long shot. This isn't a one in 260 million odds. You are in. (laughs) I want you to know. That word know is so important to John. In this short letter, he uses that word know something like 40 times. God wants us to be assured of our salvation. So back to the lottery ticket. What if I told you the odds weren't one in 260 million? What if I told you the odds were one and one? That would change some things, wouldn't it? Hey, then it's not gambling, right? It's a sure thing. Think about how that would change your approach, how that would change your attitude. You would go out of your mind with excitement, wouldn't you? You would start anticipating them calling your name or or, or calling your numbers, right? You would start dreaming about standing on that stage with that giant check with a big grin on your face. You would start planning on the money you were going to spend, the things you were going to buy, maybe even the people you were going to help, hopefully. You would be so excited. You might even tell other people, hey, guess what? (laughs) They're going to call my numbers. I'm going to win. Think about how it would change your life. Listen, consider this. Consider living your life right now in light of your salvation. Live your life right now in light of your salvation, knowing that you will be in heaven, knowing that you have eternal life, not just then, but right now. As someone has said, stop living as a hope-so Christian and start living as a no-so Christian. You know it's so. Because when you do that, it changes everything, doesn't it? Imagine having that assurance and that confidence. That gives you a new perspective on your trials, on your circumstances, on the things that come across your desk, that come across your life that are difficult, that are challenging, right? I put this all in perspective because I know eternity awaits. It would breed in you this sense of excitement and joy and anticipation. And the things of this world wouldn't be so important because you were looking with eternal eyes. Your mind and your heart and your eyes were set to heaven. It would change your perspective. It would give you joy, a sense of anticipation. And my guess is you would probably be excited to tell your people, hey, let me tell you about my future. 
Let me tell you about what your future can be. Let me tell you how excited I am because I have eternity with my creator. And you would share that good news. Are you? Are you living in light of your salvation? Or are you going through life wondering, doubting, in this cloud of uncertainty? Hey, I'm just not sure if I'm good enough. I'm just not sure if I've done enough. You haven't. You're not. But Jesus is. And so one final time, if you believe these statements to be true, repeat after me. I am not what I have. I am not what I do. I am not what other people say about me. I am saved. I hope that you will live in light of your salvation, knowing you are saved, because it makes all the difference. Maybe you are not saved. Maybe you are not in Christ. Paul said there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ, but maybe you find yourself on the outside looking in. Maybe it's time for you to choose Jesus. Simply to declare that you believe he is the Son of God and through faith and trust be baptized into Christ, clothed with Christ. And he will forgive you. And he will give you the gift of the Holy Spirit. Maybe you're ready to make that choice today. Uh, We would be so happy to celebrate that with you. Or maybe as you consider your life, you consider your identity, maybe you find that you've been living a lie. You've been believing what other people say or finding your identity in the stuff that you have or your worth and your value in something that you do or accomplish. It's time to make some changes. Maybe it's time to spend some time in prayer, confession. Maybe it's time to make some visible, outward changes in your life. I pray that you will have the strength by the Holy Spirit to do that. If we can help you with that, if we can encourage you or pray for you, please let us do that. In just a moment, we're going to stand and sing. A couple of our shepherds and their wives will be in the parlor. It's a room right behind me. You can go out any of these doors and make your way there, or you can come down to the front, and we will encourage you today. If there's something we can do, we invite you to come as we stand and sing. There's a fountain free to